Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane, with us taking a look at her first episode of Taxi, as well as the 1981 adaptation of James Thurber's beloved satirical short story, The Greatest Man in the World. It's Praising Kane, and I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is the Lone Eagle, Doug Tilly. Doug, how's your life right now? I mean, on at the day that we're recording this, Liam, it's been quite a break between us recording episodes because you have been coughing nonstop for a week straight. Yep. You have somehow, in a world that's where everyone is getting the same disease, you managed to get a different one. <laughs> You are suffering right at this very moment from, thankfully, the tail end, it seems, of bronchitis. Yeah, I don't love it, Doug. Um, I uh, I think I got just a regular cold from my daughter, mm. and uh, somehow it moved into my lungs, and now I have this horrible coughing disease that just makes me very unhappy. Yeah, yeah. Liam has been very unhappy, and I like to keep him happy when we're recording, because he's already miserable enough, generally. Now, listeners, you will not be hearing him cough throughout this episode. I'll be sure to edit at least 98% of those coughs out. But oh, yeah. let me make it very clear to you, there is a lot of coughing ongoing, and we are forcing, we, meaning myself and you, the listeners, are forcing him to take part in something that he is in no way uh, uh, medically able to do. I mean, yeah, this is like, I, I would say it was forced labor, only I'm not getting paid anything. So really, I'm just doing this to myself, you know? So, What's more valuable than friendship? That's what I like to know. Well, how about this? Some uh, unexpected Carol Kane news. That's more valuable than oh, friendship. inform me. So uh, I don't know if you're, are you a, are you a Trekkie? Doug, are you a Trek person? Are you into Trekker the, the Trekker? is what I prefer a to be tre- called. A, a Trek- I thought they were called Treksters. I don't know if we're allowed to say that. but uh, Trekkis? Trekkis? Yes, absolutely. I think that's correct. But anyway, no. I mean, yes and no. In fact, closer to yes now that I think about it, in the sense that I have seen every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, and I've seen every episode of Deep Space Nine, which I like very, very much. Uh, and I've seen most of the original series. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's a lot. That's actually I, I've, I've actually contributed a lot of my life towards the whole Star Trek thing. I've also seen most of the movies. So, yeah, that's sure. I, that's that's a lot. I guess I am a fan. <laughs> I uh, probably would have considered myself a Star Trek fan when Next Generation was on the air. But since then, uh, I've realized that true Trek fans are such a deep and committed group of people that I do not qualify. I am a medium Star Trek fan at best. Uh, but I will say I was excited when on September 8th, 2022, that's that's uh, that's Star Trek Day for people mm. who, who who celebrate that sort of thing. Uh, it for was those who celebrate. Yeah, for those who celebrate. <laughs> uh, it was announced that uh, season two, Carol Kane will be joining the cast of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I'm excited about because um, of the... Of the people I know who are into this sort of thing, and I and I don't mean to make it sound like a fetish, 
but it is almost like that. Uh, they There has been a lot of criticism of some of the newer Star Trek properties. Some people love them. Some people are very critical of them. Yes. Uh, but this is one of the ones that I had heard a lot of praise for from even some of the hardest to please Trek folks. And so hearing that she's joining the one thing that maybe I would actually enjoy has me pretty stoked, you know? Yeah. Um, now, there's not a lot of details yet about what her role is going to be, but it is a recurring role. So it's not like a one-off. I mean, if it was a one-off, we'd watch it anyway, because yeah. that's that's where we're at here. But this is going to be a recurring role. Doug, are we going to have to cover a whole season of a mm-hmm. new Star Trek show? What do you think? I mean, I think that would be kind of fun. I know that you're always a risk averse when it comes to the whole watching TV thing, which yeah. is kind of funny because we're going to be talking about a TV episode in just a moment. But this is so unique. I was not expecting to hear from this. I was getting messages from all over the place. They're like, did you hear the news? And I'm like, what? Star Trek news involving Carol Kane? It just seemed absolutely impossible. And then the image was released and she looks great in it. it. It looks so fun. And like yourself, look, there are some people who are into Star Trek who have told me that all the recent Star Trek is good. I don't believe them. I've watched Picard. I watched a few episodes of it and it was not good. And I have not seen much of Discovery, but what I have seen has not seemed very good either. Even the people who, like you said, have said, you know what, most of the new Star Trek is not good, but Strange New Worlds and maybe Lower Decks are something that you should make time for. And I'm like, uh, I, I was always I was always kind of planning on eventually watching it. So this really kind of pushes me to do it a little bit faster. The other thing is, I believe Strange New Worlds, I am um, one of my jobs that I do because I live in 2022 and I have multiple ones is I work in in sort of uh, IT. And one of the places I sometimes work at is in this uh, city in which I live in, Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. And when I was there uh, a few months back, they had been filming Strange New Worlds at that building. They'd been uh, just doing some some outdoorsy out, wow. outdoorsy stuff. So I, I have another connection to it and another reason to watch. So yes, Liam, uh, to make a very very long story short, I will be watching it, and yes, I will be forcing you to talk about it here on this uh, uh, podcast, praising Kane. Maybe well before we reach that time period in terms of the chronological. <laughs> Discussion. Yeah, I, I do. I, I was I was just thinking that like we wouldn't get there chronologically for quite a while, but <laughs> quite a while. Our, our deaths will likely occur first. <laughs> but I will say I do think it's I do think it's worth it to cut the line, maybe since this is such a contemporary thing. Mm-hmm. And as you know, though, we're talking about taxi today. For the most part, for this podcast, we focused on filmography. We focused yeah. on movies. So I think TV is like a special thing. Uh, even on this episode, we're, we're talking about Taxi, not just because it makes sense chronologically, but because the movie we're talking about is so short, and there's just not a lot there. So I think it made sense for us to do it. But if people are thinking we're going to be doing a lot of TV episodes, I that that's not currently the plan, though if after we finish the filmography – we are still doing this show and we want to jump on uh, an episode by episode breakdown of Kimmy Schmidt. I mean, I guess we could do that, though. We'll have to talk about all the like stuff I didn't realize was racist till after I watched it in the moment. I'm like, well, it's kind of funny. And then later on, I'm like, oh, no, that was bad. Why did I like that? The thing is, it, it would be very difficult to ignore Taxi in regards to its impact on the career yes. of Carol Kane. So it's, I think it's important for us to talk about it. And there may be things like that where we have to dip into television. Agreed. But the fact yeah. is. You know, after her success on Taxi, which was a little more complex than I really considered until I started watching the episode that we're just about to talk about, I never really, 
you know, she she will be a uh, almost exclusively, you know, feature film actress for quite a while. So I don't think it's much of a concern. But, uh, you know, it's you, like you said, we'll leave it open for the possibility of dipping in. But I don't see us. What is that series with Al Pacino that she's on? Yeah, no, thank you. I'm not into yeah. that at all. Yeah. I mean, it's just unlikely that we're going to be sitting down and watching a whole season of it to talk about it, especially seven years down the line when nobody could possibly care about it. It's probably, I, it'll probably be removed from streaming anyway. We'll never even have a chance exactly. to see it. I, I, I do want to say when people uh, think about this show being chronological in some of our other shows, a uh, friend of the show, Josh Jerk from the band School Drugs, has been doing the work to try to guess exactly how long it will be until we get to the movie Jackie Chan movie he wants to discuss with us he's like I think in six months you'll be there like he Mm. literally has done sort of guessing at our regularity with that show and how far in the future he's like if you skip a couple things I think you'll probably skip should be about six months and I was like you're a crazy person. He's like, I just really want to do the episode, man. I was like, all right, sure. Oh, man, I, I appreciate that enthusiasm. If you want to join us, listeners, on an episode uh, of Praising Kane devoted to Scrooge, you might want to mark a time in your schedule for the year 2035. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Taxi, uh, uh, Taxi Season 2, Episode 17, entitled Guess Who's Coming for Brenfish? 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, that's that's what the episode is called, yes. That is the premiere of Carol Kane on that show. Uh, Latka quickly falls in love with Simka, a girl from his country who's now living in New York and is secretly from a different background than he thinks. She's a mountain person. I, yeah. I spoiled it for you guys. Sorry about mm-hmm. that. Uh, directed by James Burroughs, written by Barry Kemp. Um, let's just jump into it. Uh, before I even ask you just straight up, Doug, what you thought of the episode, mm-hmm. I kind of want to know, what do you think of Taxi? I think we've met, we've talked about it briefly on past episodes, but I just want to remind people, like, are you a Taxi fan? Is this something you're familiar with? Or is this like you're jumping into unknown waters? So it, it wasn't entirely unknown. I've seen episodes of Taxi previously. It's funny. Even when I was a kid, Taxi to me seemed like an old-timey sitcom. And I, when I say old-timey, no, I'm not talking about like the Honeymooners or stuff like that. But contemporary for me was Cheers, which is really the the – evolution of taxi i mean it came afterwards it had a lot of the same behind the scenes people involved cheers was you know late 80s early 90s for me that was something that was always on the taxi was from the before time so it's never something i i was into too deeply though i know you know by reputation that it has a lot of respect certainly i'm very aware of the cast and certainly i'm also aware that andy coffin was a part of it because he's some someone just like a lot of people of our generation liam that that his mystique and his profile grew and grew throughout the uh, 80s and 90s and early 2000s. So it was something I was really interested in visiting this and uh, with the understanding as well that anything from this period of time, there are going to be certain problematic aspects of it, but it's not something I think we need to linger too much on. But if the question is, how much did I know about Taxi? I knew the, I knew what the, the, the plot was. I knew the cast. I knew the style of humor. So I think I, I was pretty prepared for this episode. How about yourself? Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm aware of Taxi as a thing. I have memories of watching it as a kid, but watching it on this, like some things were very familiar. Uh, obviously Tony Danza is, uh, you know, he's, he's doing the, the mindless Tony Danza character here. We've got <laughs> Lothario, Danny DeVito, like the mean boss. I get that. Even a very young Christopher Lloyd who, it took me forever to even remember who that was. I just knew he felt so familiar, you know, and as, as Reverend Jim and his sort of like 
you know, constantly not understanding what's going on. All that felt very familiar, but I definitely have not watched this show very much because I didn't realize how fucking corny it is, you know? <laughs> and uh, and as I was watching it, I'm like, oh, this is more of a of an actual sitcom sitcom in a even older sense than what I'm familiar with. I mean, it's a sitcom. It was right? a bit of a. It was a bit of a surprise. I will honestly. say that was the adjustment for me. I just have not watched a sitcom like this in a very long time. Long ass time. Yeah, and and it really has kind of outside of you know like a Big Bang Theory or uh, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, that sort of or the King of Queens, like those kind of things, which even those are not on the air anymore. I haven't watched this style of television in a very long time, and it's kind of gone out of fashion. Yeah. One hundred percent. Well, what did you think then of this episode? Uh, specifically, obviously, the introduction of Carol Kane as a as a as a wrinkle in the life of uh, of uh, Laka. I I have to admit, I really enjoyed watching it. Maybe it was the novelty to a certain extent. Sure. But let's. Let, I also want to make it very clear. I have a lot of respect for the sitcom format. You know, there are great sitcoms. I've watched lots and lots and lots of sitcoms in my life. I grew up in the golden era of them, and even though. It's funny because nostalgia is such this weird, poisonous, dangerous thing where people have like weird nostalgia for things like Full House, a show that was never interesting or funny in any way, but was just part of their life for so long and something that they have fondness for that it's like, oh, that was good. It's like, was it? Could you really enjoy that? But people can just enjoy it because of the memories it brings. Something like Taxi or Cheers or other kind of contemporary sitcoms of, of like similar quality. I mean, there's there's these are some of the best comedy writers of that era all coming together and trying to, you know, make something that has 21 episodes a season that has some sort of story arc, but still has to wrap up and at the end of every episode. So I, I think that there is a kind of a technical curiosity that I have with it, but I also have to say that I found some of it very funny, but when I say some of it, it is solely the Reverend Jim character. I thought he was so fucking funny. Like everything he said I thought was the funniest part of this episode by like 10 times. It's just an amazing performance and an amazing character. But also just this idea. It's like Taxi is kind of strange because it has like three regular people. You know what I mean? It's got Judd Hirsch. It's got Jeff Conaway. And it's got Mary Lou Henner. Who are supposed to be like everyday regular people who work at this taxi, you know, office. They work as taxi drivers. And then everyone around them is like wacky. And it's usually you only have like one or two normal characters, but this has like a whole kind of cadre of them. It's kind of like WKRP in Cincinnati or something like that, where it's just like you have the regular people and then you uh, see how they react to this more and more bizarre stuff. I mean, the the character of Andy Kaufman, uh, sorry, Andy Kaufman's character in this Laca Gravas, he comes from a fake country and has this ridiculous voice, his his foreign man voice that he used to do in a stand-up. And like... It, it, you might as well be a Martian coming onto it, but that's just the kind of shit that happened in sitcoms, especially as it went along. Yeah, I gotta say, Doug, like I thought I was a fan of sitcoms. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh man, oh man. You know, oh, okay. In fact, this is how I want to present this to our audience. You know what? I found one of the most alienating and unrelatable parts of the movie Man on the Moon. What was that? When Andy Kaufman is working on Taxi and he's acting like it's the worst thing that's ever happened to him and he's like fucking in pain, like all of the parts where he's on Taxi in the movie, it, it, it nothing worse could be happening to him in his life. This is the disaster of his life. And I remember thinking, yo, man, you got a fucking job. You're making money. You're like, what is your issue? Like, I, I, I remember thinking like. 
it, you know, I, I accept that this man was a comedic genius, but right now he just feels like a whiny, whiny baby. And then I watched the show, Doug, and now I'm on Andy's side because I, I, I thought I mean, there was. You got to take into account. I know you already have. Like sitcoms don't get any better than this. This is as good as they get. Oh, oh man, here's the thing. It's not just that it's a sitcom, right? It's that his character on the sitcom is one of the worst parts of the sitcom. <laughs> Nothing he does is funny. <laughs> the whole joke is the voice. He's already used up the comedy of the voice in season one, I'm assuming. Because by this, it's like, even like when they're doing the fake language with each other, and that's supposed yes. to be fucking funny. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not funny. Nothing about it's funny. The, the funniest part of him and her interaction is the reveal that she's a mountain person, which yes. you see coming as soon as she sa- as he says, well, we don't like the mountain people. I'm like, all right, there it is. That's what the episode's about. All right, here we go. I got it. I've, I'm, on, I'm on page with it. But like that was still funny compared to everything else he does. Even the like the apartment of a very lonely man, which got a ton of laughs in the room. Mm-hmm. It's fucking nothing about that's funny. That I'm with you. Reverend Jim is kind of funny. Some of the normal people quips are a little funny, like they're they're smart at times, but a lot of it just feels like people have to talk for the show to keep going. So everyone just keep talking, and at some point, I don't know, we'll 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 find a joke somewhere. And most of the jokes aren't funny, man. They're just not fucking funny. And like for me, I just found it to be. Not unpleasant. It moves along. I like the actors. I wasn't like in pain, but it's just not good. Like, and and my memory is like, this is Taxi. This is one of the most important sitcoms in the history of the fucking medium. There are there are comedy experts who would point back to Taxi before they point to anything like Cheers or. There's a direct thorough line between Taxi and The Simpsons. Yeah, ex- yeah, one hundred percent. And here I am watching it, going, "What the fuck is this bullshit?" Like I just, <laughs> I'm out. The most interesting part <laughs> is that it's about people who drive taxis, and the least important thing to this episode is that anyone on the show drives a taxi. The only <laughs> reminder you have that anyone drives a taxi is the beginning when Tony shows up and he's been robbed, and that's like interesting for like five seconds, and then they're like, "Okay, we got to move on with the episode here." This, this possibility of uh, one of our characters getting shot in the face is only interesting for about a minute and then we have to move on to the much more meaty material of the episode and i was like what the fuck i can't believe this was a show especially considering it's set like they've set a comedy in uh the rotting center of our metropolis right yeah absolutely At, at one of the worst times in its history and it's just not important it just doesn't it's just like that that's kind of important to what the show's about, but it just doesn't seem to be a central theme. I don't know. I just was like watching it, feeling like I was in some sort of weird, like alternate universe. Like, what the fuck is even happening right now? I have to. Are you a fan of Cheers? I mean, that's the the show that this is most often. Well, and so to. here's here's the deal with me in my memory. But when did I watch Cheers, Doug? Yeah, I was eight. I was nine. I was ten. You know what I mean? Like. I also liked Night Court. If I rewatch Night Court, am I going to be stoked on Night Court? Probably not. Like I think, I think we've all moved on. And even now, when I think about the sitcoms I try to give a chance to, they all say we're in the tradition of the sitcom. Like that's a new, that's a thing now. Is sure people trying to reclaim the half hour sitcom? But a lot of those shows have learned something, and they're they are at a different pace and a different style. Just because they are the same level of fake. Does it mean that they are the same level of funny? I just think the sense of humor has changed, 
and I'm I had trouble connecting with the jokes. Now, I I'm being harsh because I expected it to be funnier than it was. It's not entirely unfunny. There are funny parts, but it's just a lot less. The hit ratio was way lower than I thought it would be, uh, and. I wanted to be excited because here's our girl. You know, here's Carol Kane. She's this is her showing up. This is going to be a massive part of her career. I mean, she doesn't become a series regular until the fifth season, but this is her introduction of the character that will eventually become a part of her life as an actress. And it was fine. Like she was fine. It was fine. But like, I mean, this is designed that they 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 would not bring her back. The the, the structure right. of this episode yes. is such that at the end, well, there's and, no. But reason. isn't that so sitcommy that they yeah. did bring her back anyway? Absolutely. So even that, the way that it ends, I thought, yeah, of course she became a series regular. What the fuck, man? Where's the where's the dog that rides a skateboard? Like that should be on the show too, right? Like, does does Laka eventually have like two little cousins who like talk with a lisp or some shit? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, there's something about this. That at the time probably made a lot of sense, but I can't relate to it very well now. You know, the most boring thing in the world as a any sort of critic, if that's what you would call ourselves, any commentator in the year 2022, is to go back to older media and say, boy, I'm always surprised by how white it is. But I will say that while watching this, I was like, there's a black character, right? There has to be a black character on the show. And then I thought about Cheers. Did Cheers not have a black what are the, how can you have a huge... I mean, they have a really big cast for a sitcom, and it's just such a white fucking cast. It is unbelievable to think about. They're cab drivers in New York City. Oh, I know, Doug. I mean, if you think about it, the fact that Night Court had two black characters in a show that was otherwise white was kind of a thing at the time. Like, oh. Yeah, they didn't even start with the two, right? Because Marshall no. Warfield didn't join two Yeah, exactly. Later. But, like, they even have, like, a foreigner, quote-unquote, character in this. And <laughs> not that it would be great to have a foreigner character be a black man or or even some sort of, like, uh, from outside of New York City. But it's just funny that they just make up the fucking place that he's from. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's useful for Andy because he just gets to be weird and he's not offending anyone specifically. So he yeah. can be a crazy person. But... It certainly feels strange. I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was this like uh, stranglehold on cabs by like white Americans. Like maybe they needed an episode where someone of, of color tried to join and they pushed them out just to be more realistic. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's what you would like to see. <laughs> well, in the sense for it to make sense, because again, I wasn't there. You know what I mean? Like I was I was alive, but I wasn't in New York checking out the demographics of cab drivers. Right. What what year is this episode from again? Uh, the eighty one or yeah. no eighty? Oh, 80. So yeah, I'm one years old. So like you know, <laughs> I, I'm not You're saying, telling me you weren't watching Taxi when you were one years old. Well, no, but what I mean is, maybe this is real. Maybe it is true yeah. that you would have a cab company and it would be all these white folks and and all, they would only know white folks and there would just be white folks all over the place. I guess I guess that's real, but it it feels oddly segregated to me. Now, granted, I think you're also right. That's not a strong critique. That's just that's just the time we're in, and people. There was a real belief of media company of the uh, you know TV companies that like you, you you need you need the Jeffersons, and then you know what I mean, or all in the family, or you know what I mean, like you you had to have segregated shows that that was part yeah, of media, good times and, and that that existed for a long time. That was a big part of the media landscape. So I'm not going to lay that on Taxi. It's just weird because of where Taxi's set. You know, if you're watching Who's the Boss. 
and you're like, man, this is really white. It's like, yeah, it's in the suburbs of some place. Like, of course it is. But this is a taxi company in New York City. It just seems strange, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it seems even stranger when you think about the plot of this episode. The idea is that Cal Kane's character comes from the same village as Laka. But she's a mountain person, and he hates mountain people because they make jokes about them. His family would disown him if he was friends or or a partner to a mountain person. And, like, the whole idea is about this idea of differences that don't mean anything and certain aspects of tolerance. It's a very light version of that. But that's what this episode is about. It's about how these two white people have differences that uh, their families wouldn't be able to overcome. But love is stronger than those differences. And it ends on a very kind of um, um, sad note. Right. With him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a comical sad note, but a sad note where Latka has lost the person that he loved because of his intolerance. And that's where it went. But then this show from like watched from from kind of this open, you know, watching from the uh, the distance of time. It's like <laughs> it's like, boy, that point would have been made a little bit stronger if you had any diversity at all in this. Cast. Yeah. Yeah. If even <laughs> even like the extras just anywhere, you know, so. And I mean, look, Cal Kane is 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 funny. And she is a good partner to Andy Kaufman on this. And she obviously struck a chord either with the people involved with the making of it or with the people watching at that time who wanted to see more of the this interaction in this character. Uh, but uh, it is kind of it's it, it also, you know, you can kind of directly trace a line between Andy Kaufman's character on this and Balky on Perfect Strangers. Yes. And Perfect Strangers is a much worse sitcom than this is. And it's, but it's also just like, how about someone who is a fish out of water and speaks with a funny voice, and that is all you have, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what Luck is. Look, I know a lot of people have a lot of affection for Andy Kaufman, so do I. People have a lot of affection for this character, but it's just compared to, again, I hate to compare it to Reverend Jim, who is just he has so many great moments, and he, he almost exists only to be a a joke machine, which is fine by me. But Laka in this one is supposed to have some sort of depth in this specific episode, and that's that's a tall order. I wouldn't say I got a lot of depth out of anything here, but I will say <laughs> it, it was fun watching the introduction of Carol Kane to the show. Uh, I just I just wish that the the show was funnier so that I could see how she kind of over time transitioned into a comedic actress. But we're not talking about one of well, I guess we are talking about a comedic role for her today in our film. But let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about the short film. The greatest man in the world. We'll be right back. The first time I saw Pal, I knew he was someone special. I was at work, and the way he looked up to me, it wasn't like the others. It it was more respectful-like. Where were you working? In burlesque. But Jack changed all that. That's why I'm where I am today, folding flaps. What does Jack's merch mean to you personally? Clean smelling breath when he holds me close. Even if he doesn't shave every day, it just makes him feel closer somehow. Doesn't he ever feel a trifle too close? He does not sweat any more than he needs to, if that's what you mean. Except one time, I remember he pushed me down and right there on the floor. Miss he... Duffy, this is a family paper. And then he fell asleep on top of me with the shoes on. This version of James Thurber's tale tells the story of a young amateur pilot who beats Charles Lindbergh's feat of nonstop flying around the world with his own unique ways of conserving fuel and energy. 
It's 1981's The Greatest Man in the World, uh, directed by Ralph Rosenblum, who's probably best known as uh, Woody Allen's editor on movies like Sleeper, Bananas, and of course Annie Hall, which uh, Carol Kane was in, so there's a connection there. Um, also was an editorial consultant on Alan Ar- uh, Arkish's Get Crazy, uh, written by Jeff Wanzel, or I guess a- adapted by Jeff Wanzel, right. uh, his only writing credit. Uh, and this, you know, this series, if, if people uh, are looking at the site, they see the picture, uh, it, the art might look familiar. This this whole uh, adaptations of great stories might sound familiar, especially to fans of our Eric Roberts uh, podcast, because this is part of the same series that uh, Paul's Case was a part of. And, and hopefully you'll remember, if you do listen to that show, that we really loved Paul's Case. So that's an interesting mm-hmm. connection there. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have the same affection for... Uh, the greatest man in the world, <laughs> Doug. What did you think of this forty-five minute adaptation uh, of the greatest man in the world? I should mention, Liam, that I went and read the short story. That Smart. This was based that was a, on. that was good to do. Um, because I, I mean, I not that I care that much about its its fidelity as an adaptation, but this particular series of adaptations is really was meant for the classroom to a certain extent, or people who already appreciated the works. So I imagine that the fidelity would be pretty close, and it is. It really does keep pretty close to that story, which, by the way, was from 1931. So this is a look at the idea of mass media, the way that it can uh, rise someone up from obscurity, the way that it can crush somebody. It, in that sense, I really did find it kind of interesting to watch simply because you were getting the perspective and also to read, to be honest, uh, getting the perspective of someone who worked in newspapers at, at that time because James Thurber, um, James Thurber wrote for newspapers, did cartoons for newspapers, wrote essays for newspapers. So he knew that business inside and out. So he was critiquing something he was part of. And that is interesting, particularly from the perspective of 2022, when the media is so much bigger, when it's so much more ruthless. And the same thing still kind of happens all the time, though its effect might be slightly different. So I have to say, it's rough to watch because it's, it, you know, I lo- I'm going to use the word that you love to use, corny. It's a very corny thing and very intentionally so. The humor is very light. It's like, eh. and but it does have kind of a harsh ending, which I'm looking forward to us talking about. And it was fun for me also because I recognized a number of the actors in it, specifically Reed Bernie, who plays Smidgen, who's sort of this naive reporter in it. You've probably seen him in a thousand different things. Here, seeing him as a young kid, basically, someone probably in his uh, 20s was kind of unique for me. And seeing... Uh, um, John McMartin as well, who I only know from All the President's Men, where he plays another newspaper man in that. I wonder if that was uh, uh, why he ended up getting this. But anyway, just getting away from the cast, because these are just character actor type people. I thought it was slight, but fun, but also not anything I would ever recommend or revisit again, unless it was the context of, hey, media sure has changed since 1931. Yeah, there is something here. I mean, there's going to be familiar things like to the extent around the need for um, governments with hegemonic power to control narratives. Right. So like the government is so stoked on making Smirch a spokesperson for America that when they get the real Smirch and they realize he's a fucking jerk off, it you know it becomes a crisis for them of how they're going to manage this guy, uh, which would be a fitting metaphor. I think for Charles Lindbergh, who also could have been a hero of America uh, if he hadn't tried to overthrow the government in a fascist takeover. So, like, yeah. I mean, let's be clear. Charles Lindbergh was a hero to America. 
right? I mean, that, that most people didn't care about all that stuff that he did afterwards, or if they cared, it was only in retrospect. I mean, this is still this is not as as you've already mentioned uh, already, but also that that the author said explicitly, this is not meant to be a parody of Charles Lindbergh. It's supposed to be what if instead of having a straight true blue American like Charles Lindbergh who did this incredible thing, what if we had some jackoff? Right. It just happens to be that from 2022, we know that that hero was a jackoff, and that's the issue. I think. Because I didn't know at first what the actual inspiration for the story was, I thought, oh, maybe this is like a, a, a criticism of Lindbergh. But if you pay attention to how the story works out, it's pretty clear that's not the case. And as Doug pointed out, we basically embraced Lindbergh even after he tried to overthrow the government. He really didn't feel any pushback until later in life, uh, you know, strongly past World War II. And, you know, he did end up dying in obscurity in Hawaii uh, and he never gave up his praise for the German people and for the Nazi government, which is maybe a bad move on his part. Again, but, uh, the stories from 1931, though, so not such an unpopular thing to be talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, that, but so that's but that's the issue, right? Is that like as a cutting satire of someone who like can see where this guy's going with his America First movement and says, "Oh, I need to lampoon this guy." There's maybe something here that could be fun. But as this is, this is just a reminder. This feels to me, and I don't know if it's intended that way, but it feels to me like some classist bullshit, honestly. It's like, oh, no, a guy did a great thing, but he's embarrassing. He's an embarrassing uh, 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 carny guy. You know, he's basically mm-hmm. a carny, and, like, that that sucks for us. So what are we going to do with this dude? And in the end, when he gets thrown out the window, it's <laughs> – Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's less, like, tragic – then it is like funny and, and almost like a reminder of like, well, the powers that be will do what they have to do to maintain control. And it doesn't feel like it didn't feel in the movie version, at least that there's a lot of judgment for them, for them doing that. It's like, yeah, he does suck. And I'm like, it, for me as a viewer, I felt this dude sucks. I don't, I, I just want him to go out and embarrass everyone. Like, that's what I wanted from the story, yes, Doug. of course. Was him to escape and make everyone feel bad. That's what I wanted, and that's not what I got. And I was honestly kind of disappointed, despite feeling like there were aspects to the production overall that I thought were kind of fun. You know, there were some things I enjoyed. I was really bummed on how this thing wrapped up. The fidelity to the story is actually an unfortunate thing in this case, because if this was a adaptation that was allowed to be a little free from like the mid 70s then brad davis's jack smirch character would be like jack nicholson in one flew over the cuckoo's nest right he would be representative of someone throwing this monkey wrench into this established system and even if he wasn't heroic even if he was kind of an asshole that the very fact that he was disrupting this uh larger than life you know classist system would be something that we could celebrate but you're right in the context of it at the very end of it it's like Oh, this guy is an asshole. We can't do anything with him. Eh, throw him out the window. Who gives a shit, right? I mean, like, it, it feels like it's almost... I don't think that the par- point of the story was that it's a justified thing. It's just that, oh, a little person will always get swallowed up by this much more powerful machine. It's just, it's also, you know, where we live in 2022 and being awful can sometimes actually get you further <laughs> than being a decent person. Well, that's what it boils down to, right, is that... uh not only in today's world, being awful won't get you really out of the public eye like this. It'll actually get you in charge of the greatest nation in the world. You know, <laughs> imagine whatever are you talking about? <laughs> imagine. I mean, I literally think what's what's so funny to me is it was the perceived discipline. 
and the perceived control and the perceived power that made Lindbergh fall in love with fascists. Yeah. And if Lindbergh knew how close the Nazis actually were to this jerk-off Trump, I think he would have been so fucking bummed. But yeah. it, but a lot of the people, not just in, in Germany, but in Italy, in a lot of these places, the people who help these people come to power are often nefarious idiot criminals who resort to fascism because they don't know what the fuck else to do. Like, it's not just that criminals uh, and, and people who who violate the social norms are attracted to fascism, they're unsuccessful criminals. Successful criminals don't need fucking fascism, man, because they're really good at manipulating the the system without uh, a a fucking army of black shirts. It's really the people who are bad at other things who become fascists, hence Donald Trump. And I, I just think about this guy, I'm like, here's the system crushing this guy because he's not the stand-up dude that Lindbergh is. Meanwhile, this dude is exactly like Donald Trump, our current fascist threat. And I just thought that was really great in a, in a certain way, though unintentional, completely unintentional. As a story itself, it's just this like, what happens when someone who we don't find very endearing does something that inspires people because right. people, in a way, it's really a criticism of the way that legends function. And that's mm-hmm. fine, but I just don't find it that interesting to me now, despite feeling like, like I thought the performances, we'll talk about Carol Kane specifically in a sec, the performances other than her were pretty strong. I, I, you know, it's, but, but also just as a story, I don't know. I didn't find it that compelling. It was just sort of mildly interesting. I think it's more compelling from the perspective of the public who we never get to see, which is that sure, yeah. they're all accepting that Jack Smirch is the hero that they want him to be because that is what they're told. And they're told that because they want to be told that. Right. And so that idea of kind of reinforcing what people want. But I mean, it, it that is just not as reflective of our reality now. So it feels, you know, very kind of dated and it, probably in 1981. I mean, certainly 1981 post. Richard Nixon, it probably seemed very dated as well. But I do think as a critique of lazy reporting or manipulative reporting and the way that it works with politics, I think there's still something there. There's still something that I think you could interpret from it, but I don't think you get anything more from the visualized version than you would from the short story. Well, I think the way it doesn't work in our modern world is that the uh, the press has does still maintain a certain amount of control as they did at the time, right? Like, so, uh, you know, uh, famously the New York Times praising Hitler, New York Times uh, uh, silencing criticism around around Iran-Contra and the Coke trade. New York Times has done a lot of the sort of work that the press does in this this movie. Yeah, there's a part here where where there's like a press conference and Jack Schmirch is just absolutely awful so instead the the person running the conference the the who, who works with the government he just gives out answers you know he yeah, gives out yeah. things that things that he might have said in the moment and that's that's what they've printed right? but i think the difference that the press has learned is that they can make a lot of money and uh what i think has happened in modern times is while there is some conformity to the status quo there's a much bigger feeling of how do we actually tell the most ridiculous story? Because then we'll make some fucking money. And, yeah. I, and I think that's the difference is that that was hard to relate to. It's not the idea that the press can often be used to maintain the illusion of control. That's very familiar and, and, and still true. But I think the press is a little less 
uh, controllable now because they're much more inclined to do whatever they can to get more eyes to make more money, which sometimes means blowing shit up in people's faces where the powers that be would actually prefer not to talk about this. But the press is like, well, but what if I talk about it in the most reductive, least helpful way to really get people fucking afraid that'll make me some fucking money so that's what we're gonna do and so like that those differences again not that this story needed to include that but it is funny to see that difference where it's like oh this feels familiar but also it's so different in some ways like than what's going on in in our world so yeah especially with the speed of the news cycle and the fact that the news is now 24 hours a day right but you knew i you know i i do want to come back to this ending you knew they were going to kill him as soon as he walked in the room, right? Like, that wasn't a surprise. <laughs> That's th- There was nowhere else for the story to go at that point. The only hesitancy in me thinking that was the idea that this story was from 1931. And the idea of just ending with, like, a lead character just being murdered, mercilessly thrown out the window to his death because he just wouldn't play ball. I guess maybe I was like, oh, you know, they read this in schools. But no, I mean, I actually liked how dark the ending was because yeah. it just – that one felt – of everything that happens in this, that rang the truest, which is like, look, you either got to work with us at this point because we're in too deep at this point. You're going to embarrass us. And instead of you being embarrassing, we will make you disappear. I agree that I liked the darkness of it. I just felt like as a viewer, I wanted him to embarrass them. I wanted of them course. to lose control. <laughs> and granted, that's just my modern bias, but that's that's how I felt. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Carol Kane as uh, – okay – April slash sweet patootie. So her name is April patootie, but he calls her his sweet patootie, right? Which patootie being a slang word in the 30s for ass. Is that correct? I think it might just be a term of endearment that's connected with slang. It means ass. I'm going to look it up right now. Well, hey, that's fine. I mean, the the idea is here, like Jack Smirch's name is ridiculous as well. It's one of the the, the funniest things about this is the idea that his name is just, instead of something that's like, I mean, Charles Lindbergh maybe didn't seem... Like, like, from the perspective of history, it's, like, such a strong name. Charles Lindbergh, Jack Smirch, right? It just sounds almost like flatulence. So, apparently, mm-hmm. it, it is both. It is either a term for uh, your girlfriend or an attractive young woman or a term for buttocks on either humans or animals. Well, there you go. Uh, animals? <laughs> yeah. This, the example sentence is about a horse's patootie. <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. But he anyway, smells like a horse's patootie, Doug. I mean, I think I think you're right that she is named that specifically because of that interpretation. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's it's not her most uh, transformative <laughs> performance, but I thought it was fun, man. And honestly, I found it funnier than the Smirch stuff. Like Smirch is fine. I think Brad Davis is good in the role. But I just thought her little monologue section and then when she's freaking out when he comes to see her, when she tries to go see him, some of that stuff was a little bit more fun for me than Smirch, who, like, the point is that he's annoying, and that's funny, but it's also kind of annoying. So it's like it walks a fine line between being amusing or just being frustrating, you know? Her role is kind of interesting because it kind of seems like they want to make Jack Smirch completely irredeemable, right? That there's just nothing positive about him. But she legitimately 
A seems to be, I mean, decency is, is such a loaded word, but like she just she doesn't seem to have all of his flaws and seems to legitimately care for him and think that there's something worthwhile about him, even compared to Jack Smirch's parents who seem to, <laughs> I mean, his father likes uh, his talents, but his father's in jail. His mother completely disowned him. But, she, you know, Cal Kane's character, the Sweet Patootie, she legitimately seems to love him. And he legitimately tries to get to her when he is uh, kind of locked away because they're trying to keep him away from uh, from people to find out what he's really like. I don't know. I, I it, it feels like they're trying to tell us something about the fact that there's more dimension to Jack Smirch's character. It's just that everything we see is so overtly unpleasant that it, it rings a little hollow, I think. But I think she's, she's fine. I mean, she... She's played this kind of of maybe ditzy isn't the right word, but a little um, she has a, like an attitude to her character, yeah, which I think yeah. is, is a lot of fun. Well, look, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was solid. I wonder if the film is not entirely clear about Jack Smirch in that there are parts where he is actually, despite being annoying also a little bit endearing and then other times when he's the worst ever just real frustrating and i wonder if the movie is of two minds about him and and isn't sure how to portray him in a way that works for me i would prefer a version of this where we kind of like jack smirch personally that he's an asshole but he's like the kind of asshole you might want to spend time with and this guy is not that really yeah (laughs) he makes some fun choices he's funny sometimes but for the most part he's just a jerk off and it's and it's it's not it's not what I think would work for me, but it is what it is. And and I think that it's probably only for the Carol Kane completist, but I'm not upset that we watched it. I thought it, I thought it was, you know, uh, uh, an amusing watch overall. It also has an intro read by Henry Fonda. And when I say red, I mean red. Henry is <laughs> his eyes are moving back and forth over those cue cards. Uh, I mean, look, I love Henry Fonda. Uh, it was kind of fun to see him at the beginning of this, but it just kind of reinforced the idea that this is educational programming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is you're eating your vegetables. It's available on YouTube to watch for free. I'll put it in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. Yeah. Again, I wasn't bored with it it was i'm glad that it was not feature length i'm glad that it was the length that it was and it's it's it it gave me an excuse to read a story that is very well liked and well regarded so i mean i i I consider it a win all around yeah well that's the greatest man in the world at least if it's on youtube it's not going to cost you money to watch it uh on our next episode (laughs) we're going to be talking about 1981's strong medicine an adaptation of an avant-garde play about rhoda a historical heroine who feels oppressed by the people around her. She suffers through her birthday party, goes to see a doctor, plans a vacation, argues a lot, and even breaks the fourth wall. Okay. <laughs> Directed I, by Richard Foreman, written by Richard Foreman. Uh, you know, it's it sounds like the sort of art things that Carol Kane was doing before she started doing other things. Uh, I don't know. I'm stoked. Uh, I, I hope you'll come back here and join us as we discuss it. Uh, and I promise by then I won't have bronchitis anymore. Uh, Doug, if people want to hear uh, more of this show or some of our uh, sister shows over at Cinepunks or just anything recorded with me where I don't have bronchitis, where could they go? <laughs> I should let you know, by the way, there's some familiar faces in Strong Medicine as well, including Raul Julia. 
in an early role. So that's exciting. Uh, you can check out all, all of our all of our latest episodes over at Cinepunks.com. Lots of great uh, writing, lots of wonderful podcasts there. And also recently we've launched a Discord, uh, which has been very useful so far. Lots of people having discussions, lots of uh, places that you can find out updates about both Cinepunk shows and other things over at it. Um, where where can people find that link, by the way, to the Discord? Yeah. They should just shoot us an email, cinepunks at gmail.com, or uh, message us on any of our social media. That's uh, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're trying to keep out the assholes, so that's why we're not just throwing yeah, out the link. Yeah, if you just, I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll show all the cards. If you just post a link openly, then uh, there are just our bots, there are crawlers yeah. that will find it and then get in there, and we're trying not to, to have that happen. If you want to check out the entire archive of Appraising Kane, you can do that over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, where you can also find our entire archive of other shows, including shows devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy, Paul Bartel, Eric Roberts, Jackie Chan, uh, Steve Buscemi, and lots more, all over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. You can find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. I'm on there as well, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. All right. Thank you so much for listening. All right. <laughs> Y'all, I'm, I'm barely keeping it together over here. Uh, thank you for listening, even to one of our more uh, 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 sick episodes where I am barely uh, keeping my lugs in my mouth. Uh, we really appreciate your support. Uh, feel free to rate, review, subscribe, wherever it is you like uh, podcasts. Tell a friend. We really appreciate it. But until next time, we just hope that you have a good bronchitis-free evening. Bye-bye.